The Boring Company is an Elon Musk company that digs holes <laughs> for, but like for like these like hyperloops. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Floor Nine. I am your host Scott Elcherson. With me, as always, is my co-host Adam Simon. Adam, what's going on? Hey, not much. So, Adam, it's the summertime, and as you know, I have a lot of questions about your car, and I have to know, how often do you fill up your car? Are you somebody that likes to push the need for gas all the way to empty? Do you do it when it's halfway full, a quarter tank full, whenever you're by a gas station? Like, how often are you putting gas in your car? Uh, it varies a lot because uh, I'm not using my car to commute uh, for obvious reasons. Mm. We're still working from home. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty sporadic uh, and depends on what my road trip situation is. I tend to push the limit of like how far okay. I can go uh, without refilling. Um, the, the exception is like if I have to stop if I'm on a road trip and I have to stop for some other reason, like to get lunch, I might fill it up anyway. Or like if I have to... If I want to like get the car washed or something, I might fill it up when I do that. Just take care of all the car stuff at once. Do you have a good out of gas story? Like, have you run into that scenario as somebody that likes like to push no. it to the edge? I have never run out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, even though I, this car is only uh, a little more than a year old, I, I did used to live in California. And so I did used to drive a lot. Uh, and even then I, I never ran out of gas, which probably gives me um, some false confidence in <laughs> terms of like how, what I can get away with. Yeah, that's like my worst nightmare is to run out of gas. And I've been closed before, uh, but I've always managed to make it to a gas station. But, you know, one of my favorite features of some newer electric cars is that you can actually just go car to car to recharge somebody if they do run out of out of charge on the side of the road, uh, which is very smart. That's reverse cool. Reverse charging. Um because then you have to think eventually um, when there are you know mostly electric cars on the road, maybe tow trucks just also have batteries on them and you just plug into the tow truck and that's an easy way to get people going again. That is super interesting. And speaking of transportation, we may as well jump right into <laughs> one of our first topics that, that we want to discuss this week, which is uh, Virgin... Well, not Virgin Galactic, but Virgin's Hyperloop. Uh, it's funny. Most people associate the Hyperloop with Elon Musk. Uh, he basically released this uh, as an idea uh, a few years ago and said, here's the thing. Uh, I'm not going to make it, but if somebody else should make it. Um, and what it is, is using magnets to produce using magnets to propel a train at super high speeds in a vacuum sealed chamber so there's no drag um and it's so it's a slight improvement and modernization of the the maglev trains that they have in japan for example so he said here's an idea i'm not going to make it but somebody else should uh, richard branson uh in their you know uh billionaire uh, Playboy conversations uh, decided to form a company around it uh, called Virgin Hyperloop, of course. Uh, and they are sort of the leading developer of Hyperloop technology and Hyperloop routes in the United States. So we haven't talked about mobility in a while. This seems to be one of those more pie in the sky sort of, but maybe coming down from the sky side of product development. Yeah, it, it does seem very futuristic, and it is in some ways, but honestly, it's not any more futuristic than 
autonomous cars than having fully autonomous vehicles, right? Like Hyperloop technology, like full autonomy, is something that is has been demonstrated. We it it is uh, something that uh, you know even in this video, Virgin has it 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 works. It is in that uh, realm, and it, uh, frankly, there are a lot fewer technical challenges to this technology than full autonomy for for our uh, normal passenger vehicles. So um, I think the interesting thing is just that it's moving along and that it's probably on a similar timeline to autonomous vehicles uh, for for passenger for, you know, hands off the wheel, you can take a nap in the back seat. Um, so, you know, it's not coming around the corner, but we do talk a lot about, um, you know, what autonomous vehicles will mean for a lot of different industries, how it'll change where we live, where we work, uh, how we shop, uh, how we access services. And this is going to be another piece of the puzzle around the same time. Uh, And, you know, I think that my first thought of that half hour San Francisco to LA uh, train uh, Hyperloop, that's uh, great if you are in San Francisco and need to go to a meeting in Los Angeles, let's say. But um, I think it will actually be a little bit longer than that because the real advantage of this high-speed public transportation is that you can live not in either of those places and yet get to those places quickly when you need to. Um, so I think that you know it probably would have a few stops along the way to enable some of those exurbs to become more intimately connected to the major cities. Um, and you know, this was sort of the history of, of, of trains in Los Angeles specifically, but also in in the rest of America of just like civilization followed the trains, uh, and we might go through another, uh, another round of that, uh, in, uh, the 21st century and to sort of connect places that are a little bit further apart. Well, next up, and this is, um, I would say been more in the news cycle this week. Uh, but OnlyFans has banned uh, not safe for work content and then came back today and unbanned not <laughs> safe for work content on on their platform. And so I think this gets into a lot of just interesting dynamics when it comes to how these platforms work, uh, how platforms are there to support creator economies. Uh, this goes classic to what people say as a creator and and, and you think about like YouTube, like if you're tied to the platform, they kind of control everything uh, when it comes to your monetization and you don't actually own that audience. Yeah. I mean, I think a a few things. One is OnlyFans has said that this is, uh, this is, due to their banks and payment processors that they deal with um, and trying to pay money out to creators. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that everybody should be everybody should be a little concerned about this, even though obviously most of uh, our brands and, and are not really dealing with adult content. Uh, everybody should be a little bit wary of uh, banks and payment processors silently uh, censoring things on the internet. Uh, I think that that, that should be concerning uh, to everybody a little bit. Uh, this is far from the first time this has happened. Um, and I think that the 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 end ramification of this, like where does this all go? I think despite the reversal, OnlyFans has ruined their reputation. I don't think anybody is going to rely on this reversal really lasting uh, into the future. I think OnlyFans as a company was already going to be basically a non-entity uh, a year from now because of this. The idea that they were going to pivot into uh, non-adult content is just wishful thinking. Like no, that's if they if they let's just say this if they had accomplished that, it would have been uh, the only time that anybody has ever accomplished that pivot in the history of media. Um, so uh, I, I think the interesting thing and the interesting angle is technology adoption. Um, whether you like it or not, technology adoption does tend to follow the adult entertainment 
industry. They tend to be real innovators in adopting new technologies and being sort of the first ones on those platforms because they have different monetization strategies than a lot of other uh, a lot of other content companies. And this could be a tipping point for uh, cryptocurrency and for consumer adoption of cryptocurrency. Um, there are a lot of questions about exactly how that would work. You still, at, at this point in 2021, you still really do need to convert a cryptocurrency back into a fiat currency uh, in order to actually use it for anything for the most part. Um, so somewhere along the line, someone would have to be okay with uh, being in business with, uh, with adult entertainers. But I... It, it it does have the potential to be a mainstream tipping point for for crypto in a way that uh you know investing was for for some folks uh, obviously a reason to get into crypto this could be the reason to start using crypto as a a, a currency for transaction um and uh it's interesting and exciting to sort of see where this will go and if that that actually somebody will build an experience um that it, that works with crypto and that gets around these uh these banks and payment processors that have decided there is this giant industry that they do not want to to deal with right and so like that even goes to thinking kind of broadly about like section 230 and the conversations we've had about um where does the platform come in as a regular and then where does the infrastructure come in right because the isps given section 230 are there just to really like basically be the pipes and there are certain things that the law regulates that like cannot be on the pipes and like that's when like they'll step in yep um and in this case you know these financial providers are i would say some of the pipes and so is it up to them to decide what they support or should that be more so like in the hands well, of like the government right at, to kind of like think about that yeah at the end of the day this is a very similar um argument from a different political point of view as uh as to the what we've been talking about with with the app stores and app store regulation right it's almost the same argument um that banks could be using to say we don't want adult entertainment companies uh transacting using our products uh, they, they have the right to do that as a private company, for sure. Um, it's the same argument as Apple saying, we don't want Parler uh, on the App Store. And the same argument for, uh, you know, Twitter saying we don't want Donald Trump on our platform either. So, like, it, it's easy to get caught up in the sort of your political and emotional reactions to these individual cases. But what we're really seeing is that regardless of legality, there is always another layer of private enterprise that enables these sorts of things, uh, that enables anything on the internet. And, and those private enterprises um, create bottlenecks that are narrower than just the letter of the law. Um, and that can have, depending on your, your politics and what you think about the world, that can have both positive and negative, negative effects. I think the reason that this might be the tipping point into not just crypto, but but larger things like dist distributed autonomous organizations or DAOs um, that are, are also built on blockchain is because a lot of blockchain technology at its heart is around decentralization and getting around those gatekeepers. Um, and uh, whereas a lot of the deplatforming of different political beliefs has been, have been relatively small. Uh, again, like it or not, the adult entertainment industry is enormous and OnlyFans is enormous and much larger of a platform than something like Parler. So, um, there is enormous 
motivation for folks in that industry and also for consumers. And also there's an enormous amount of money to be made for somebody who can figure out how to do it and how to actually capture that value. Um, and if, uh, again, uh, the reason to pay attention to this is if the adult industry does figure out a way to go to blockchain and, and crypto and this a more distributed format, uh, a lot of it potentially will spur a lot of other media in the same direction to get around these gatekeepers. Um, I, th I think it doesn't it's not uh, hard to see how how you might see folks uh, who are frustrated with the app store look to a payment system that is running on crypto as a way to uh, to get around the app store uh, and, and app store payments. Uh, I don't think that that's right now it's too complicated. Con the, the consumer experience is too complicated, but uh, this would be a new motivation for for uh, companies to figure out a, a, a very easy to use consumer front door into into crypto. Who would have thought <laughs> summer of 2021 uh, we'd be having a conversation about deplatforming de OnlyFans and <laughs> cryptocurrencies. Adam, it's I, the world we live I in know. today. I, I I no longer understand. I know. Well, I, I will say that we don't <laughs> talk about it for obvious reasons, but OnlyFans is one of the largest media stories of the past year. They are the one of the prototypical creator economy companies, uh, and yep. they. Uh, unfortunately, got themselves in a situation which not only did they get themselves in a situation, they also managed it badly. It's like they've never met a PR person in how they, <laughs> they've handled this. Uh, and, uh, but I, I think I always try to say, look, it's not, there's no use necessarily in worrying about what has happened. Like, like let's just think about where it goes from here and yep. where it goes from here might have, I think will have impacts on the rest of the media economy in places that brands do transact. Uh, whatever happens to uh, OnlyFans, uh, to, to creators on OnlyFans will necessarily have trickle-down effects, first probably to other creator platforms like Substack and Twitch uh, and yep. Twitter itself, um, and then eventually to more more mainstream media platforms as well. It, it is a trickle-down effect for the entire media ecosystem, I think. This is a lesson I think creators have learned again and again when it comes to platforms is that they're there for a re like they're there they can be super beneficial but you can't be like you don't want to be like reliant on a single platform you always have to be thinking about how and in what ways you can take your audience off platform own it directly and uh monetize it directly because whether it's youtube whether it's twitch whether it's OnlyFans, we have seen this story time and time again where uh x y and z creator gets deplatformed and they lose revenue that they could not other make up otherwise through other like other sources um and it's this constant battle between that ease of access to a large consumer base and then, you know, being, I guess, um, <laughs> everywhere uh, to make sure that like you're like diversified across different um, platforms. But then, of course, larger brands have incentivized other creators to be on XYZ platform exclusively. And it kind of gets into, into that whole interesting conversation when it comes to contracts and, and talent and IP and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, uh, the most successful creators on every platform always branch out into other things. Um, and mm -hmm. some of that is a natural evolution of their personal brands, right? And, and, and yep. diversifying their revenue. But a lot of that, the motivation for that diversification is around what is the YouTube algorithm going to do? Or what happens if people stop reading Substack emails and newsletters were yep. just a fad? You know, like there's a, there's always a little, there's, there's a certain amount of hustle to get up and going, but then once you're at all successful, uh, it is imperative that you build a direct connection with those users so that you can move them to another platform, not 
not if the, you need to, but when you need to, because right. on an infinite time scale, you will need to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and speaking of other large social platforms, uh, we have some news from TikTok to round out our conversation here. Um, and this is a headline of uh, TikTok is expanding their Shopify partnership, and they are now piloting in the US, the UK, and Canada um, their new in app commerce feature called TikTok Shopping. Uh, so, very similar to Facebook Shopping, there is now a shop tab with on the TikTok profile of a celebrity or creator or business that individuals can actually go to browse products that are populated from a Shopify store. And then, once you click on a product, you'll actually be taken to the Shopify site to purchase and complete the transaction. Action. Um, so just, you know, again, uh, we're just seeing how this integration uh, between Shopify and TikTok is continuing to grow and um, how we're seeing more broadly as a trend of this, like in social, uh, how these large platforms are looking to figure out the ways in which they can really make these channels incredibly shoppable uh, and easy for consumers to shop on to drive additional revenue. We've talked about it with uh, Instagram. They made a whole pivot into shopping uh, recently. Um so these are, I think, like the small kind of product updates that brands should really be thinking about of how is my new storefront on TikTok going to be managed? You know, what does that look like? What's that strategy? Uh, and then more broadly, how do we manage stores across every single uh, social platform? Because we have to meet consumers where they are. Uh, and this is a way to do that uh, in the you know 21st century. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've known this has been in, in the pipeline for TikTok. It's exciting to see it finally come to market. And uh, exciting that it's another place that you can push your shop- Shopify content uh, because they're the universal shopping platform at this point. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun and exciting, and we'll we'll see how it performs. I'm, I'm very curious because TikTok is a very different environment than Instagram or or Facebook, and this could really be a tipping point for shoppable video content in the U.S. Uh, and in as we know has been popular in China. Uh, and if we get consumers. Uh, accustoms that through TikTok, uh, it might open up some some new opportunities on other channels as well. Yeah, and we know like there's actually a stat um, when it comes maybe not live video, but like it's like shoppable video in general. Like video format has always performed well from a media perspective, and so it's just natural that like from a brand perspective, thinking about how you can make video shoppable, whether it's through live video or through um, you know pre roll advertisements or is like general uh, you know video, it's like that is a really effective way to. Um, capture attention and ultimately kind of push it down funnel to those lower funnel actions, which are, you know, completing a purchase. I mean, Adam, do you want to get into how we believe, you know, Shopify (laughs) is something that all brands should be running on? (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, I think Shopify is kind of the universal shopping platform. Anything that is not Amazon or another major retailer, any, any place that, that shopping shows up on the internet uh, in any of these social platforms, as well as things like YouTube and Google Shopping, Shopify is the the best way to get there because uh, they are always there on day yep. one. Um, and as you know, I think we're me. I don't know. I, I say this. I, I was about to say maybe we're running out of pl- new places for shopping to pop up, but uh, uh, I haven't seen a Substack shopping channel yet. And maybe <laughs> who knows what what is next on, oh, on Shopify's uh, the, whoever the the partner uh, team is at Shopify. They really have a hit list of, of who are who we're going to integrate with. Um, I'm curious who's next. Substack merch stores easy. Maybe Zoom, Zoom shopping. I could see it happening in Zoom. <laughs> that would be cool. I'd like that. Um, but like to your point, not only are they first 
you know, or, or, or there on day one with all these new platforms, but they have that app ecosystem, right? They have this third-party marketplace where developers can uh, build extensions, build apps that you as an individual can easily integrate into a Shopify store because, you know, more broadly, like Shopify is meant for originally small businesses. And so they really want one to two people to be able to run these stores. So they make it super easy for you as an individual to connect your Shopify site once it's up and running to all these different destinations and products. Uh, And so, you know, it's just there's this ease of access that makes it incredibly interesting and powerful to then, you know, test and learn all these new shopping innovations because they're coming to Shopify first. And so thinking about how you can have a, you know, a one SKU product store uh, or something that can be used to essentially like test and learn uh, in the Shopify environment becomes really valuable because then you can get to Instagram shops, Facebook shops, TikTok shops, Pinterest shops. You can figure out how it works with SMS marketing or with the influencer marketing itself, right? Like you can really test and learn and experiment on uh, the Shopify platform just through the third-party marketplace, which is pretty Yeah, incredible. I think that's the thing that a lot of brands get hung up on is like, oh, if we're going to start selling in on TikTok, for example, um, you don't like, don't get overwhelmed and think that you have to have every skew set up inside of TikTok, uh, or, or that you have to right. like, reinvent your fulfillment and logistics system. If you're like a CPG brand that normally distributes th- through third parties, uh, you can, you can Shopify is designed as a platform to be able to have one person run a store. So if you have one or two people on your team who can dedicate a few hours a week to managing the Shopify store, it, I think, I think it really think it behooves every brand to at least be experimenting in the space to see which products mm-hmm. work because it's also it's going to be different products on TikTok and different products on uh, on Facebook probably yeah Instagram and Facebook yep I really think it behooves a lot of brands to sort of get familiar with the ecosystem and which products might work where and there are one click ways to get Shopify hooked up to your existing logistics platforms and your existing fulfillment platforms uh, you can use their fulfillment partners. Uh, for really easy uh, fulfillment and logistics. Uh, and yes, it might take a little bit of effort to figure out how, to, how do you get one pallet of your one skew into to their, their folks, uh, to one of their partners. Um, but it really is designed to be run by one person. So there is a relatively easy way to do it. Um, oh, and you know, you can use those Shopify partners. It's not going to be the most profitable way to do any of this, of course, but it gives you an easy way to test. Uh, and once you know if mm-hmm. which channels are successful and what products they're successful for, then you can sort of start backing out and, and plugging in your standard logistics and fulfillment partners as a way to, uh, to get back to, uh, you know, higher profitability, uh, per unit. But we've been saying this for uh, a while now, but it just seems like, uh, I think the brands that are not experimenting with Shopify and getting a good understanding of the ecosystem and the, what the types of products consumers want to purchase through these new channels, uh, I, it's going to give you so much more data than if you uh, wait for somebody else mm-hmm. to do it first, uh, because the fact of the matter is, uh, even if you're even if you have a competitor with similar SKUs, uh, it's not going to be the same branding. It's not going to be the same audience. It's not going to be the same creative. Uh, there's a lot of things that might impact what might succeed or fail on a specific channel. So, um, yeah, I think every every brand should be experimenting with Shopify and pushing out to these new and emerging shopping channels. Well said. Couldn't agree more. And if anybody wants to go over the deck I made <laughs> about this, um, 
hit me up. I would love to take you through it. There's a lot of really interesting, uh, you know, ways in, I think for brands and, uh, things that we can activate on, uh, in these coming months. So, uh, if you're interested in shopping, please let us know. Well, we definitely had quite the spread of news this week and to, uh, round out this episode, uh, we're going to hand it over to the Magna team, uh, for this week's Magna Minute. Hi, Brian Hughes here from the Magna Intelligence team with some highlights from our recent time spent with Media Report, which focused on sports. Sports content continues to take an increasing share of live TV viewing minutes, accounting for about 14% so far this year, higher than 2018 or 2019. I'm excluding 2020 here, of course, because of all the COVID-related interruptions. Asian Americans, who are lighter broadcast than cable viewers in general, dedicate a significantly higher percentage of their live viewing time to sports at 23%. Highlights have become an integral part of the sports media experience for Gen Z and millennials, with channels like YouTube, Twitter, and Bleacher Report seeing increases in the viewing of short clips. Meanwhile, a morning consult survey showed that only a quarter of adults 18 to 34 consider watching the games themselves to be an important part of being a fan. Stay tuned for more analysis on sports when our annual sports report releases next month. And as always, you can reach out at forecasting at magnaglobal.com to learn more about our research. Well, listeners, that is going to wrap up this week's episode of Floor 9. As always, you can find us on Twitter at T-I-P-P-I-E-R for me, at Adam J. Simon for Adam, and of course, at IPG Lab for the lab. So thank you all, uh, and we'll talk to you soon.